Okay, so tonight it is Palm Sunday and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, that passage of scripture. It's great actually, Brian read out Matthew's version and tonight we're going to be reading out of Luke's version. But this is one of the stories that we find in all four Gospels, of course, because it was one of the really main um, events, certainly in the last week of Jesus' life, his entry into Jerusalem. And tonight what I want to do, um, as we're looking at this passage, as Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king, I want us to really um, talk about paradox. So we're going to be talking about paradox tonight and about the ability to hold two different things in tension. Is that all right? Great. You know, you don't really get, you know, if you just said no, there's no real, there's no real... Uh, um, Niels Bohr, who is a uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist, said this, the opposite of a correct statement is a false statement, but the opposite of a profound truth may be another profound truth. Now, he's far more intelligent than me and possibly more than you as well. Um, I, don't, I don't even know anything about him, even if he's still alive or anything. Is he still alive? Is he like one of them old people like Einstein or is he like more? I don't even know. But he said that. Really profound. The opposite of a correct statement is a false statement, but the opposite of a profound truth may be another profound truth. And Parker Palmer who is an author I love to read, says this, the capacity to embrace true paradoxes is more than an intellectual skill for holding complex thoughts. It is a life skill for holding complex experiences. So I know that's deep, but we'll, we'll circle back to that and hopefully it'll all make sense by the end. The capacity to embrace true paradoxes is more than an intellectual skill for holding complex thoughts. It is a life skill for holding complex experiences. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. That is the title on the heading of every passage in the Gospels when you come to this bit. Now, the titles we know were added later, but um, that is the title. Now, funnily enough, I don't think that Jesus himself ever made a verbal statement about the kingship of Israel. But this is the moment when he makes a nonverbal prophetic action that stakes his claim to being king of God's people and he does it without words. I don't know if the gospel writers or the disciples around Jesus at the time understood what was happening or if they understood it in hindsight. We don't really know but this is certainly the time that Jesus lays claim to the kingship of Israel. We know this as the gospel readers, as the gospel writers write these passages of scripture all four passages have old testament references in them so all four writers use the old testament to show that jesus was making a claim of kingship when he did this now obviously that didn't they they wrote that back into it 
And it's all, here's, here's a, a handy hint for reading your Bible. If you ever see an Old Testament thing quoted in Scripture, like you know when you're reading your Bible and you get the little A, B, F, G, whatever it is, and you look down the bottom and it says, you know, Isaiah 60 verse 3, always go back and read what the Old Testament actually says. Because a lot of the time, the New Testament writers edit the Old Testament. So it's always handy to just kind of look back and go, oh, what have they done with this portion of scripture and how have they used it to make sense of what they saw, especially in the life of Jesus? So that's a handy hint because in the passage that Brian read where he, Matthew quotes Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, which is, you know, rejoice, O daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you on a donkey. That is actually not what that verse says. It does say it, but it's edited severely. So just, just, just for interesting Bible readers. Any interested Bible readers among us? No. A few. Yes. Always look. Because sometimes when Jesus does it, he splices two different sections of Old Testament scripture and it looks like it's one verse, but it's two. It's very interesting. Anyway, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as king. But the paradox is that he is not like any king that they hoped for and he's certainly not the king they expected. They were hoping for a powerful, conquering, saving, victorious king who was going to save them from their current oppressive regime under Rome. That is what the Jewish people were anticipating that the Messiah would do. But Jesus doesn't come doing that. He comes doing other things. And if they were maybe honest with themselves in the moment, a lot of them might have said, you're not the king we want. We want a king that looks like this, not, what, not the dying kind of king. We want the victorious kind of king. So there's a paradox in here about what Jesus is doing in laying claim to the kingship. And because this whole year we're beholding Jesus and I've been spending time just looking at these passages of Scripture and in particular really looking at what Jesus is doing and kind of beholding what, what are you doing here, Jesus? Like what, you're, you're making a prophetic action that lays claim to the kingship, but you're not like any king they expect. So what is it that you're doing? And this is what I've come up with, that this passage of Scripture in any of the four Gospels is a passage of scripture we can go to in our own personal lives to look at Jesus when we're disappointed with God. Or when God is not doing what we want him to do, this is a good passage of scripture to go to. When we're waiting for a miracle or answered prayer, or breakthrough, or some sign and wonder, and we're waiting, this is a great passage to go to. When the God we believe has, that, when the God we believe has power doesn't seem to be using much of his power in ways that we'd like him to use it, this is a good passage of scripture to go to. When we're still suffering in pain or oppressed, despite our prayers, this is a good passage to go to. 
And when the promises of God are not yet yes and amen, this is a good passage of scripture to go to. And I can say that in my life, I have felt all of those things about God. God, where are you? God, I believe you answer prayer and I believe you're powerful, but I'm not seeing much of what I want to see right now. I, even when I was younger, remember having a rant at God about the fact that God was not meeting me halfway, which now in my more slightly mature space is hilarious that I would even accuse God of needing to meet me halfway when the reality of everything God's done is he went the whole way and I'm like, not much at all. But I'm saying that to say I know the felt experience of being a follower of Jesus and yet sometimes feeling disappointed or lost or bewildered or experiencing things that we feel or we're told are not the things we should experience as God's holy and chosen people, yeah? And you know those feelings too because I'm sure you've had unanswered prayer. You've got miracles that you're waiting for. You've got things that you're wrestling with. You also believe God has power and perhaps sometimes wonder, where is the power? So this is a good passage for us to wrestle with when we're in that place. And so we're actually going to watch um, this passage tonight. So I've, I've chosen the Luke version of Palm Sunday because it has a few extra things that I'd really like us to dive into. So... After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Having a closer look at that passage where Jesus, he sends his disciples to go and get the colt and they get it and they bring it to him. And then it says in uh, verse 37, When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now that's the paradox, isn't it? This is part of it. That here we have Jesus coming to Jerusalem as king. Not only is he not riding a horse and coming victoriously, he's riding a donkey with only his friends with him and he's crying, weeping. That's a strange picture of a king, a weeping Jesus, weeping as he rides, weeping as the crowds praise him for the miracles he's done, weeping over the city. It's not the picture of the king they expect. And he says to them, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And we now know, because we live after the fact, that Jesus was foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in about AD 70, where Rome actually sacked Jerusalem and destroyed it, completely destroyed it as part of their brutal campaign to dominate and to oppress. And there is a sense, I suppose, from a national perspective where Jesus is seeing that and he's saying to all of Jerusalem, if only you had known what would bring you peace. In other words, if you had only known that I bring you peace, if only you had known that my way brings peace, if only you had known how to lay down the sword, if only you had known to follow after me, then, then you would know peace. But you haven't recognized me when I've come to you. You haven't recognized God in skin coming to you and you've missed it and you're going to miss out. That's kind of the essence of this passage of Scripture. 
And therein lies the paradox, doesn't it? This is what I've been thinking about and contemplating in the last couple of weeks. That there is this crowd of people who are jubilantly worshipping Jesus. It says, for all the miracles he's done. Yay, Jesus, you're the king we want. You've healed the sick and raised the dead. The blind can see and the lame can walk. And you've, you've walked on water and defied physics somehow. And we know you're in charge of the weather and fish somehow find their way into the net when you tell us to drop it down. You are amazing. You've even raised the dead. And we cheer and we celebrate and we lay down our cloaks and our palm branches because you're the king we want, Jesus. We want you to save us from our sickness and our sins and our lameness and our deafness and our blindness. We want you to eat without cast. You're the king we want. Hallelujah, Jesus, is what they're saying. And yet Jesus... The next moment is weeping over Jerusalem and saying, if only you'd known what would bring you peace. If only you had known. But you've missed the time of God's coming to you. And I think, wasn't the miracles and the wonders and the raising of the dead God coming to us? What? What is Jesus kind of like holding intention here? And this is what I think are two profound truths that we need to learn how to hold together that Jesus is referring to in this story. And these are the truths that I've written. I've got them up there. That God in Jesus shows himself to be healer, saviour, miracle worker and demonstrates his power. That that is true, 100% true. That God in Jesus demonstrates power. Power over sickness, power over sin, power over death, power over oppression, power over rejection. He shows his power in the person of Jesus. And yet, what is also true is that God in Jesus reveals his greatest commitment to us is to be present in our suffering, even unto death, and bring us peace. In other words... Jesus doesn't always just save us. Sometimes the greater miracle is the beautiful presence of God in the midst of our suffering, even unto death, and he gives us peace. And the paradox is both are 100% true and they do not cancel each other out. And yet when you walk the Christian life, it is often really, really hard to hold both of those truths in tension with all of the stuff that goes on inside our individual lives and our communities and our nation. A little while ago, I read 
a version of the gospel. I don't know if I've shared this with you before. And I read this version of the gospel and it irritated me for a very long time. And I'm going to, sh- I think, I might have, have I shared it with you before? I'm going to irritate you. Maybe I'll irritate you. Um, when I read this, I was just annoyed because I felt like it's not the gospel I wanted. Let's put it that way. And this is the, the way that this person told the gospel. This is the gospel. There is a crowd of people on the beach and Jesus is with them. Out beyond the waves, there is a girl and she's drowning. Have I told you this? And she waves and all the people on the beach see her and they say, someone needs to go and rescue her. So Jesus says, I'll go. I'll go and save her. So Jesus swims out past the waves, grabs onto this girl and instead of doing that cross-chest swim and carrying her back into the shore, he simply stays with her as she drowns and they drown together. Three days later, Jesus shows up on the beach alone and reassures the crowd, everything's okay, I've got this. The end. When I first read that, I was unhappy with the writer <laughs> and it really, really irritated me. This is why. Because I have this version of Jesus who saves and who rescues and probably this version of Christianity that feels entitled to being rescued and being saved. And I don't like this version of the gospel where Jesus doesn't do the saving thing, but instead does the with thing, the drowning with thing, and then somehow tells everyone, don't worry, it's okay. And it, it really has irritated me for a long time. But I have slowly come to make peace with that as part of the paradox of the gospel. That yes, is Jesus a saviour? 100%. Can Jesus heal? 100%. Did Jesus raise the dead? Yes, he did. Did Jesus heal the lame? Yes, he did. Can Jesus give me breakthrough? Yes, he can. Are all God's promises in Jesus yes and amen? Yes, they are. Does that always happen in my life? No. And in fact, if I have a version of Jesus that saves me from all pain, suffering and disappointment, then I've got a really busy Jesus and in the end I still die. And I have come to recognise the magnificent gospel of Jesus being present with us and to us in the midst of all of our suffering that that in itself is gift and grace and beauty and wonder and salvation. And I don't like saying that to you because I can see your faces. 
But I'll leave that there with you to be irritated with yourselves. And you can not like it like I not like it. <laughs> we praise God for miracles. We pray to God for healing. We ask God to relieve our suffering. We long for breakthrough. We look for signs and wonders, and Scripture tells us to. And rightly so, because God is a God of power. God has power. God is powerful. And we praise Him for all of that. But sometimes I wonder if there are times when Jesus is weeping over us. Weeping over us. I wonder if there are times when all our spiritual focus and energy are on waiting for a miracle, so much so that we miss and do not recognize the time of God coming to us and bringing us peace in the midst of all of life. Perhaps Jesus weeps with us when we weep. And he shares in our sorrow as we share in his sorrow. And as he weeps with us in the midst of our suffering and our pain and our frustration, maybe he's whispering to us, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He doesn't say, in this world you have trouble, but take heart, I will rescue you every time you encounter it. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. My grace is sufficient for you. I am with you always to the very end of all things. My peace I give to you. Peace I leave with you. I leave you with peace. So to circle back to Parker Palmer's statement about paradox, the capacity to embrace true paradox is more than an intellectual skill for holding complex thought but it's a life skill for holding complex experience. And then we read this passage of scripture. I think if we behold Jesus long enough, we will feel him pushing us into deep waters where we can hold the tension of believing and experiencing at times the radical power of God in our lives and the lives of others, as well as fully encountering the peace of God wherever we're at, even in the waiting. That it's true that God is deeply present to us in our pain, even if he doesn't rescue us from it all the time. Can I hope and pray and wait for a miracle or breakthrough and trust in God's promises as well as living in the peace that the presence of God brings right now 
and the satisfaction that God being with me is enough. How do we access the full satisfaction of God's presence with us right here and right now and still have robust hope for the power of God displayed in this world. How do we do that? That's hard. How do we live in faith and expectation that God can do miracles and yet live from the place that God with us is enough? This is the tension of the life of faith. And we have to be careful we don't... Now, let me say this. I've seen people live in the extreme of either camp where the miracle is everything. I'll leave that there. And I've also met people who live with almost like an emo version of Jesus who almost imagined that Jesus just showed up at this point in his ministry and didn't actually do any miracles or power beforehand and he's just like suffering with us and we're just suffering together and you know like I've, I've encountered both of those and I have felt both of those in my life. There have been times when I have just desperately wanted God to change me or change my circumstances and I've been disappointed with him and angry and questioning and if God came to me and said, isn't it enough that I am with you? I would have said, no, that is not enough for me, Jesus. I'm sorry, but I'm hanging out for the miracle. And I've known also the deep, deep peace of simply encountering the amazing satisfaction that being with my beloved Jesus is enough. That me and him, if we're together, we can face anything. I've been in both of those places and I think at times I probably tend to swing from like either camp. But somehow I think the way of mature faith is to learn how to hold both of these profound truths in tension and walk as best we can in the middle of them. Do we stop believing in God's power because we don't see it displayed in the world? No, we don't. We are the people of hope and we are the people of faith and we are people of prayer and we will pray and we will believe and we will trust that the Jesus who did miracles in the Gospels is still the same Jesus today and that the power of God is alive and well and we will look for it. Those who look for miracles find miracles. But we will also walk the road of deep oneness with Jesus, which isn't reliant on the whiz-bang and the hoo-ha of miracles, but we can say to Jesus, you and me, we're enough. Let's weep together. Let me recognize when you come to me, Jesus, because I don't want to miss you because I'm hanging out for my miracle and I miss that the richness of your presence is right here with me in the middle of my grief. 
and we hold those two things in tension. They're both true. God is powerful. God is with us. Yeah? And this is what I see when I read this passage of Scripture. Jesus, not the king I always want, certainly not the king I expect, but a beautiful, weeping king who calls me to recognize him coming, to be with me in the beauty and the mess of my life. Yeah? I'm going to pray for us. And then I'd actually like us to pray for each other tonight, just, to, just for a moment. Just turn your attention to God. God the Father, whose arms are open wide, who's welcoming you. Jesus, the weeping king, who displays both the power and the intimacy of God to us. And Holy Spirit, the energy and the life and the flowing peace of God to us. God, we sit with you. And I want you to just think about a time in your life when you have seen the power of God. Maybe it was an answered prayer. Maybe it was a healing. Maybe it was something unexpected. Maybe it happened to you. Maybe it happened through you. But I just want you to call to mind a time when you have known the power of God. And I want you to praise God for that. I want you to thank him. Honor him. Lay down your coat before him. God, we praise you. You are mighty to save. All glory and power belong to you. You have created this world and you sustain it with your very being. You have power. You can heal. You can bring breakthrough. And we thank you, God, for every time in our life when you have done this. And we give you praise on this Palm Sunday. And now I just want you in the presence of God to bring before God something in your life or in your world where you're yet to see the promise of God fulfilled. Maybe you have pain in your body. 
Maybe you have grief in your soul. Maybe you are watching a friend or a family member suffer and you're praying to God. Maybe you're longing for change. But bring something into God's presence. Father God, in all of our unanswered prayers, in all of the places in our life and around us where we're yet to see your kingdom come, your power change things, in all our brokenness and our sickness and our pain and our suffering, Jesus, we bring it to you. And we pray, show us your presence. Let us know you are deeply with us. Can you recognize God's presence to you in the midst of all your unanswered prayers? God, we long for intimacy. We long for oneness. And we long for peace. Help us, Jesus, to encounter you the way you are. Not the way we wish you were. Amen. Just to finish before we go, I'd really like us to pray for one another. Especially anyone who feels like, I need some prayer. I want to see God move and have his way. I have unanswered prayers. I want to see the power of God displayed. I think it would be really good for us to, in that place, lay hands on one another and be with one another in relationship as we ask God to bring salvation to us. So is there anyone who just really feels like, yep, that's me, I would love some prayer? You want to say something, Michael? Okay. Thanks, Caro. Um, just as you were sharing that gospel story, um, I felt a bit uncomfortable about it too. And then I realised that... Um, in my own healing journey and um, yeah, getting to know God with us, with me and being in God I realised that I've um, cried out to God and said um, in these really painful moments, where were you? And um, I haven't been a very emotional person but I've learnt to, to go back there and really cry out to God um, and and feel that pain and in childhood or whatever and every time I've asked Jesus where were you then and he shows me he's right there with me beside me behind me with his arm around me just across from me every single time and I that just I mean it sends chills down my spine thinking of it now and I, I just thank him wow that's amazing and then I thought hang on a tick 
you were there when I was a kid suffering and you didn't even tell me. And I was, I was pretty annoyed with him. I, th- I thought, you just left me there. You were with me, but I didn't even know. I was just by myself, I thought. Um, yeah, I was pretty unhappy. But, but, and I just asked him, what's, what's the go? And he, he just showed me, Michael, you know now. You know now that I was with you. I always was. I always with, will be. I'm not a God of the past. I'm a God of the present. You know now. You know now that I'll always be with you. I always am and I always will be. And, um, yeah, so I just wanted to encourage you all with that and thank you for sharing that, Karen.